As uh, the new children's ministry director, I was thinking that children's ministry, it occurred to me, as I was sitting there this morning with you all, that children's ministry begins in the womb. Just kind of popped in my thought. Uh, I was curious, how many of you were not here last week? I, I heard there's a lot of people gone. And, and how many of you are still not here today? I know everybody on the live stream, your hands are up, and you are with us in spirit, and we are with you in spirit. So it is Sanctity of Life Sunday, and there was a March for Life in Washington, D.C. on Friday, and actually that march was going on when Pastor Tim asked me to do this teaching today. So I grabbed a couple slides from the march. Uh, and the, the issue of pro-life is, is very encouraging right now. It's actually very exciting. Uh, the, the cause of the pro-life movement has really made some advances recently, despite having an administration that has been more on the pro-abortion side. Uh, I found a quote by Alan Guttmacher, He's from Planned Parenthood. He said 2021 was the worst legislative year ever for U.S. abortion rights. And uh, he reported that in the first half of 2021, in states across America, 90 pro-life laws have been passed and signed into law, which is a new record. The previous record was, in 19, uh, was 89 in 2011. And yet, but those law in 2011, those were laws that were just kind of made to kind of protect against the advances of the pro-choice movement, where these laws, these 90 laws are advancing the cause of life in our country. I, uh, I teared up when I saw this next slide. We are the post-Roe generation. Roe v. Wade hangs by a thread. Heartbeat laws are passing. The Supreme Court is set to reevaluate Roe v. Wade in the Mississippi case. It's Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. And the court is, I think a court is expected to rule in favor of the, the Mississippi law, which limits abortions to uh, 15 weeks or less. Uh, so go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1, and I've entitled this message, Infanticide in Egypt. There's an encouraging title for you. And let me just kind of lay out the, the, the structure of my, my sermon today. Uh, first, I'm just going to march through the text, verse by verse through the text. Then uh, we're going to talk about some themes in the text, especially the theme of the issue of taking of a life and the protection of life. And then I'll close with a few points of application. In 1999, Rick Santorum went head-to-head with Senator Barbara Boxer. There she is. Uh, on the issue of partial birth abortion. And he asked her a simple question. He said this. You agree once a child is born is separated from the mother 
that the child is protected by the Constitution and cannot be killed. Do you agree with that? Now, any ethical person would have responded, yes, of course. However, Barbara Boxer danced all around the question. Santorum was arguing for the ban of partial birth abortion. Partial birth abortion is where babies are fully ready to be born, fully viable, and yet doctors kill the baby partway out of the birth canal. Partial birth abortion is nothing less than infanticide. It is the murder of a baby. And yet we've gone to the place in our country where this kind of thing is up for debate. Thank God that this practice was outlawed in the United States under the Partial Birth Ban Act of 2003. And this act was later upheld by the Supreme Court as being constitutional in 2007. It has long been a tactic of Satan to kill babies. This goes all the way back to Exodus. And like I said today, we're, we're in Exodus chapter 1. And we see here that the killing of baby boys precedes God raising up Moses to deliver his people. Similarly, 1,300 years later in Israel, Herod kills babies two years and younger in Bethlehem just before God raises up Jesus to save the world. And in this day and age where we live in a day where we see the Holocaust of babies, I wonder what God may be up to next. Often times of great darkness precede the glorious display of God's light. During Jesus' day, Israel was a nation enslaved to Rome. And in that sense, Jesus was born in a time of slavery. And his birth was preceded by Holocaust. Similarly, Moses was born in a time of slavery and a time of Holocaust. You can look this up on the internet or whatever. There's a lot of parallels between Moses and Jesus. For such a time as this, God raised up a deliverer. In Exodus chapter 1 verse 8, if you look at the verse there, we see that Pharaoh didn't know who Joseph was. Shocking. Joseph, who had recently saved Egypt from starvation and who had brought the wealth of the world to Egypt, is now anonymous in the education of children in Egypt. Likely, there was some revisionist history going on. Apparently, the Egyptians didn't want their children to know that they were delivered by a Hebrew shepherd. For fear of the Hebrews, because of their large number, Pharaoh does two deplorable acts against God's people at the beginning of Exodus. First, he enslaves the adults. Second, he kills the children, specifically the baby boys. And Pharaoh makes two attempts to kill these babies. So first attempt, get the midwives to do it. Verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah, and the other, Pua. You're thinking of names for your babies. 
When you serve, this is what he says to them, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. So these midwives' job is to help the Hebrew women give birth. That's what they're supposed to do. And Pharaoh commands them right after the birth to do a few things. Cut the cord, examine the gender of the baby, and kill the baby if it's a boy. Verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But let the male children live. So first he tells the Hebrew midwives to do his evil bidding, Pharaoh does, to kill the Hebrew baby boys when they're born. But these women fear God, so they don't do it. Verse 18. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Such amazing women. Verse 20. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. So these women, they protect the baby boys rather than killing them, and God is pleased with them, so he blesses them and gives them what their heart des heart's desire is. Family. Pharaoh realizes that these women will not do his bidding, so he comes up with plan B. His second attempt, have Egyptians throw the baby boys into the Nile. Verse 22, then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So new plan, different people, and more people to enact his plan. So first, Pharaoh commanded Hebrews to kill Hebrew babies. Now he commands the Egyptians, his own people, to kill these Hebrew babies. Also, he enlists more people, not just a bunch of midwives. No, this time he enlists the entire nation of Egypt. Pharaoh orders all of his people, not just his soldiers, but the common people as well to throw the Hebrew babies into the Nile. Imagine being an Israelite at this time. If you had a baby boy, you could not go anywhere in public. The Egyptians despised the Hebrews. They hated shepherds. And if they got the chance, they would grab up a baby boy and toss him into the Nile. These babies would drown in the Nile or they would get eaten by crocodiles, snakes, or hippos. God hates this. Our God who says, you shall reap what you sow, he hates the killing of innocent children. And Yahweh sees to it that Egypt will reap what they have sown. Pharaoh and the Egyptians kill the Hebrew baby boys by throwing them into the river. And as poetic justice, God determines that the 10th plague would be the death of the firstborn, including the death 
of the son of Pharaoh himself. Now, some objections have been raised to the authenticity of this story in Exodus chapter 1. Some argue, civilized, educated Pharaoh would never have done such a thing. Now, you could make the same argument about Adolf Hitler. I can get his picture up there for you. There he is. Civilized, educated Mr. Hitler, an author nonetheless, would never have done such a thing. Now, Pharaoh most certainly could have done such a thing, and he most certainly did such a thing. The pulpit commentary says, Egyptian monarchs had very little regard indeed for the lives of any persons who were not of their own nation. They constantly massacred prisoners taken in war. They put to death or enslaved persons cast upon their coasts. They cemented with the blood of their captives each stone of their edifices. The, sad, the sacredness of human life was not a principle with them. But you might push back a little bit and say, yeah, but innocent little babies, really? The pulpit commentary continues, that tender and compassionate regard for children, which seems to us of the present day a universal instinct, is in truth the fruit of what? It is the fruit of Christianity. Jesus Christ, and I love him, <laughs> I love him. Jesus Christ has changed the world. This is the fruit of Christianity. And it was almost unknown in the ancient world. Children who were not wanted were constantly exposed to be devoured by wild beasts or otherwise made away with. It would probably not have cost an Egyptian pharaoh a single pang to condemn to death a number of children, any more than a number of puppies. Charles Ellicott says, Infanticide so shocking to Christians has prevailed widely at different times and places and been regarded as trivial, a trivial matter. In Sparta, the state decided which children should live and which should die. At Athens, a law of Solon left the decision to the parent. And it's interesting, we have politicians who want to leave that decision to the parent even to this day, even after they're born. The Syrians offered unwelcome children in sacrifice to Moloch, the Carthaginians to Melkarth. In China, infanticide is said to be a common practice even at the present day, largely due to their two-child policy. And if you remember back a few years, it changed to a three-child policy. Heathen nations do not generally regard human life as sacred. On the contrary, they hold that considerations of expediency justify the sweeping away of any life that inconveniences the state. Hence, infanticide is introduced by Plato into his model republic. Infanticide, according to Plato, is a key principle to maintaining a well-functioning utopia. Ellicott says, the condemnation to death of all male Hebrew children 
by Pharaoh is thus in no respect improbable. Another objection has been made. Pharaoh would have never polluted his precious Nile by having babies thrown into it. Interesting argument. And Ellicott says, the mode of the death presents difficulties. For first, the Nile was viewed as a god. And to fill it with corpses would, one might have supposed, have been regarded as pollution. Secondly, the Nile River, Nile water was the only water drunk. And sanitary considerations might thus have been expected to have prevented the edict. So then he responds to this argument. Perhaps, however, the children were viewed as offerings to the Nile or to Savak, the crocodile-headed god of whom each crocodile was an emblem. At any rate, as the Nile swarmed with crocodiles through its whole course, the bodies were tolerably sure to be devoured before they became putrescent. Infanticide is abhorred by the Lord and by God's people, but it is not uncommon in the history of the world. In the New Testament, King Herod heard about the birth of, of the Messiah. And similar to Pharaoh, in an effort to protect his throne, he ordered the killing of babies in Bethlehem. Baby boys in Bethlehem. The killing of baby girls, known as female gendercide, has been common in China for 2,000 years. According to Wikipedia, drowning was the most common method used to kill female children. Other methods used were suffocation and starvation. Leaving a child exposed to the elements was another method of killing an infant. The child would be placed in a basket, which was then placed in a tree. In 1845, in the province of Yangtze, a missionary wrote that these children survived for up to two days while exposed to the elements and that those passing by would ignore the screaming child. David Abiel, a missionary to China, he reported in 1844 that around one quarter to one third of all female babies born in China were killed when they were born or soon after. However, the largest infanticide and the largest holocaust in the history of the world is occurring right now underneath our noses in the United States and around the world. Worldwide, there are around 50 million abortions per year. In the U.S., since Roe v. Wade passed on January 2nd, 1976, the anniversary was yesterday, since then, 63 million babies have been aborted in our country. 1990 was the record year with 1,429,247 abortions. Last year, of, during the last 10 years, the number's gone down a little bit, and we are, we're around 900,000 per year. On January 22nd, 2016, my niece was born on the 40th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, and her parents named her Zoe. Her birthday was yesterday. And her name means life. And I am so glad that her parents are pro-life. 
So why didn't the Hebrew midwives kill the baby boys? Exodus 1.17 says, because they feared God. The fear of the Lord instructs us. The Bible says it's the beginning of wisdom. It teaches us what is right and what is wrong, what is vile and what is repulsive. Proverbs 19.23, the fear of the Lord leads to life. God teaches us through his word. He convicts us by his spirit. He teaches us to value life. At Mount Sinai in Exodus 20, God gave his people the Ten Commandments. And the sixth commandment says, let's say it together in the King James, thou shalt not kill. God created human life. He made people special. Genesis 1:27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Little side note here. God created us male and female. We do not have the right to choose our gender. We do not have the right to alter our gender that God has given us. Now, I have a love for the LGBT community. They are a confused people who desperately need the truth. But they need to know that altering their gender or engaging in gross, twisted, and unnatural sexual practices is defiance against their creator. And I fear for them on judgment day if they do not repent. God has made us in his image. He had, and that makes us special. In Matthew 6, 25 through 26, Jesus says, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? Isn't your life more valuable? Aren't you worth more than the birds? Human life has greater value. The Bible is very clear about that. Plants and animals are not made in the image of God. Thus, God permits us to take plants and animals for food. You can eat lunch at In-N-Out, not today, but on another day. No, you can't. No, you can eat it in now. You can't eat a Chick-fil-A. That's the deal. I get those confused. In-N-Out's okay. You can eat it In-N-Out today and not feel guilty. So we can take plants and animals for food, but... We are not to take the life of another human being. Amen. It is a very strange thing, a pro-choice vegetarian. It is a rebellion against God and his created order. This person forbids the taking of human life, which God allows. And this person promotes the taking of Oh, say, this person forbids the taking of animal life, which God allows, and promotes the taking of human life, which God forbids. Now, there are three specific instances where God allows killing. 
Number one is self-defense. If someone is going to take your life or another's life, you may protect life by killing the perpetrator. Exodus 22, verse 2. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. The person that killed him is not guilty. It was self-defense. Israelites were allowed to defend their homes from intruders which might harm them or their family. Number two is war. In war, soldiers are permitted to kill their enemy. There are many divinely sanctioned wars in the Bible. In the book of Nehemiah, when God's people labored on the wall in Jeru of Jerusalem, they worked with one hand and their other hand was on their sword. Number three, government enacted just punishment. We're not going to form any lynch mobs, but we believe in government enacted just punishment. The Bible is pro-death penalty. You like that or don't like that, but it's very clear in the scriptures. God instituted capital punishment in Israel for certain heinous crimes. Now, some will argue, you say that you're pro-life, but you're for the death penalty. To which I would respond, absolutely. I am for the death penalty because God instituted the death penalty. Back in Genesis and in Exodus, God gave us life and he has the right to take life when he so desires. He gave Israel certain guidelines for just capital punishment. Genesis 9 verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. Exodus 21 verse 12. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. Exodus 21 verse 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him, the enslavement of humans, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Now you've heard the saying, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That comes directly from Exodus chapter 21, verse 23 through 25. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now outside of these three exceptions... Man is forbidden to kill. On the other hand, God may take life as he wills. Genesis 2, verse 7. You see this. Basically, God has given life so he can take it. He has the right to take it. Genesis 2, 7. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. Why did we become living beings? Because God made us living beings. He gave us life. Uh, Acts 17 verse 25. He himself gives to all people life and breath. And every time someone dies, whether by disease, by accident, or violence, every time someone dies, that is God taking their life. Hebrews 9, 27. It is appointed once for a man to die. It's appointed by who? 
God. Appointed means decided on beforehand. God has determined how long each person is to live. He gave you your birthday and he has your death day in his mind. Glad he hasn't told me mine. Like he told Hezekiah his. But we ourselves, apart from those three exceptions mentioned earlier, we are not to determine when someone else's life will end. If you remember back in Genesis, after the first murder, after Cain kills Abel, God says to Cain, Genesis 4, beginning in verse 10, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your, blother, your brother's blood from your hand. So God says to Cain, what have you done? There's shock. There's indignation. Our God is not a stoic. Our God is anything but indifferent. He cares. He cares deeply about life. And he says, what have you done? How dare you take another's life? And God looks down upon our nation and he sees the blood of 63 million babies on our hands. And he says, what have you done? Three points of application. Number one, understand that sometimes, though extremely rare, it's wrong to tell the truth. Now, parents, you're going to have to unpack this with your kids a little later. <laughs> sometimes, though rare, extremely rare, it's wrong to tell the truth. Now, the general principle in Scripture is to always tell the truth. Exodus 22, we see the ninth commandment. Thou shalt not bear false testimony. Proverbs 6, 16. One of the six things God hates is a lying tongue. Proverbs uh, 12, verse 22. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Psalm 101, verse 7. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Colossians 3, verse 9, do not lie to one another. Ephesians 4, verse 25, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So there's a lot of scriptures that basically say, tell the truth. In this story, the midwives lie to Pharaoh, and God blesses them for it. He gives them families. So this brings up the question, is it ever okay to lie? And there are a few cases like this in the Bible where God's people lie, and it seems that God's not bothered by it. And in each time, it's in cases where innocent lives are at stake or during a time of war. So first we have the Hebrew midwives lie to Pharaoh to protect innocent babies. Then we have Rahab lies to the people of Jericho to protect the Israelite spies. Then Jael lies to Sisera, the captain of the Canaanite army, during a war so she can lure him to his death. And you'll notice that in all three cases, it's women lying. I don't, want, I don't know what to make of that, but 
I just, just a coincidence. Okay, man, you can lie as well. Um, during World War II in Germany, some God-fearing families hid Jews in their homes. And the Nazis would come banging on their doors. And they'd say, do you have any Jews in here? Do you have any Jews? I don't know how to, I'm going to work on my German accent. No, sir, no Jews in here. Now, in the story, The Hiding Place, the Nazis came to the door, bang, 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 bang. Do you have any Jews in here? And Betsy Tenboom, the sister of Corey Tenboom, she didn't know what to do. She felt convicted about lying, but she didn't want to send the Jews to their death. So she acted like a crazy woman. And she said this, Yes, yes, there are, there are Jews. They're hiding underneath the table. And the Nazis looked under the table and they said, ah, this woman's out of her mind. And they left. And Betsy felt that God had honored her for telling the truth. Let me push back on that a little bit. <laughs> because I don't think this was a truth that she was obligated to tell. And it's questionable whether or not she really did tell the truth. Technically, the Jews were hiding under a trap door that was under a rug that was under the table. So were they under the table in a sense? I mean, you could say that technically she told the truth. But how do you feel about that when your children technically tell you the truth? In reality, her aim was to deceive. She wanted to get rid of the Nazis and save innocent lives. And she was right in doing so. She would have been right if she had told a straight out lie. And the Hebrew midwives, they were right to lie to Pharaoh and protect the babies from being murdered by him. Now, if a pregnant woman came to you and said... Where is the abortion clinic so I can abort my baby? What would you say? I know that I would say anything I possibly could to get that woman not to kill her baby. So yes, there is a time to lie. But I would say 99.999% of the time, God's people are called to tell the truth. Number two, don't grow soft on these issues. My parents have joined us. My dad, I think, was saying yesterday there's a bigger and bigger divide between the world and the church. And that's because we've got our feet planted on the word of God. And if they go further away from God's word, we are not going with them. So there's a lot of pressure in our society to cave on these issues. Abortion is murder. Homosexuality is a perversion of God's created order. God made us male and female, not non-binary or transgender. My step-grandmother lived in San Francisco, and she agreed that homosexuality was wrong. She thought it was gross. However, over time, living in the city, 
She grew comfortable with it. Why? Because her foundation of truth was culture, not God's word. She grew up in a culture where homosexuality was not acceptable, but over time, as the culture changed, so did she. Why were so many young men and women willing to follow Adolf Hitler as he committed horrendous atrocities against humanity? The same reason. Their standard of truth was the culture. And as the culture went, so did they. And I think after World War II, a lot of them woke up and said, what happened? Why did we do that? We have a culture that is getting to the point where they get offended when they see a bathroom that simply states men or simply states women with no asterisks, no explanation. This is offensive to them. What about the non-binaries? What about the transgenders? These people are on the warpath. Their agenda is to normalize their behavior in the, the eyes of society. It worked for my grandmother. Will it work for you? I wanted to encourage you, teach your children the sanctity of life. Don't ever get comfortable with the fact that people are aborting their children. Let your own children know that each one of them are very precious to you and very precious to God. Let them know that abortion is a terrible evil in our world and we will never give up fighting it. We will fight it to the end. Let your little boys know that God made them male on purpose and he intends for them to grow up to be strong men. Let your little girls know that God made them female on purpose and he intends for them to grow into beautiful, godly women. All the way back in the garden, God made them male and female. He ordained that marriage would be between one man and one woman. And that has never changed. That is his standard no matter where the culture goes. Determine truth by the standard of God's word and teach your children to do the same. And number three, and I close with this, value life. Whether someone is Christian or not, they are made in the image of God. Whether someone is young or old, they are valuable. Whether someone is born or in the womb, they are alive and their lives are to be protected. I think uh, Tim and I were talking the other day. I think you said, Tim, is it 92% of those? The 92% of those women who see their baby choose not to have an abortion. Pretty awesome. I, I praise God for James Dobson. I remember it was 20, 25 years ago. He did a big push across the United States to provide ultrasounds to every pregnancy clinic in the country. And that has really helped the cause of life. So I want to encourage you, be boldly pro-life. Value the aged. Be boldly opposed to euthanasia. Take care of the sick and the infirm. Take care of your own body. Don't engage in risky behavior that could put your life in danger or someone else's life in danger. And I, I know on this whole issue of COVID, 
there's a lot of controversy and people land on both sides. But let's give each other grace because I think, uh, at least in this church, I think both sides are fighting for life. You know, maybe one side's fighting harder to keep people well and the other side's fighting harder for quality of life. But I think both sides are, are fighting because they believe that what God says about the value of life and the image of God on man is important. Life is incredibly valuable. It is a precious gift from our creator. John 10, verse 10, Jesus says, one of my favorite verses, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus gave his life to save yours. He died on the cross so that your sins might be forgiven, so that you might escape the wrath of God and be granted eternal life. Life matters to God. Why don't you stand and let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for life. I love it. I love the air you give us to breathe. I love the delicious food you give, in, give us to eat. I love that there are wonderful foodies in our church who know how to make good food and know what the, where the best restaurants are or the best places to fish are. And we have so many delights and enjoyments that you give us in this, this life, and we are grateful for that. Lord, we thank you for the fighters. We thank you for those thousands, those tens of thousands of people that showed up to Washington, D.C. on Friday to march for life. We thank you for the Hebrew midwives and for Rahab. And we thank you, Lord, that Roe v. Wade is being challenged, and we pray that it will go down. We pray that we will be the generation that sees the end of Roe v. Wade. And Lord, once Roe v. Wade ends, that is only the beginning because then we have to fight our battles in every state in the union. And I just pray that we would be victorious, that state after state after state would give up abortion and protect the lives of our, our, our most vulnerable people, the children in the womb. Lord, we pray that you would advance the cause of life in our country, in our world. Advance the cause of life by ending abortion, but also we pray that you'd advance the cause of life by spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ around the world.